Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 18. Total despair. Lord, you enticed me, and I was taken in. You were too strong for me, and you prevailed. Now I'm laughed at all the time. Everyone mocks me. Every time I open my mouth, I cry out and say, violence and destruction. The Lord's word has brought me nothing but insult and injury constantly. I thought I'd forget him. I'd no longer speak in his name. But there's an intense fire in my heart, trapped in my bones. I'm drained, trying to contain it. I'm unable to do it. I hear many whispering. Panic lurks everywhere. Proclaim, yes, let's proclaim it ourselves. All my friends are waiting for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed. Then we'll prevail against him and get a revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a strong defender. Therefore, my oppressors will stumble and not prevail. They will be disgraced by their own failures. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. The Lord of heavenly forces tests the righteous and discerns the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them, for I have committed my case to you. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he has rescued the needy from the clutches of evildoers. Cursed be the day that I was born. May the day my mother gave birth to be not be blessed. Cursed be the one who delivered the news to my father. You have a son, filling him with joy. May the bearer of that news be like the cities that the Lord destroyed without mercy. May he hear screams in the morning and the battle cries at noon, because he didn't kill me in the womb and let my mother become my grave, her womb pregnant forever. Why was I ever born when all I see is suffering and misery and my days are filled with shame? This is the word of the Lord. First thing they teach you in seminary is not to print on the back of your page so that you don't have to turn pages, but my printer flunked that course this morning, so I apologize for the pages you're going to be seeing turned before you. I returned from Chicago last week to find the sanctuary under construction, the construction company hard at work, but I am a pastoral theologian, so I could not help being caught off guard by the large signs taped on the outside of each door, the caution tape across the entrances. While necessary, of course, when you drive into the parking lot, the first word you see is danger. (laughs) The irony made me cringe. Finally, some will say, truth in advertising. (laughs) There are, you know, people who still believe and have believed that religion is dangerous. People who think that Christianity is something to avoid. Stay away, they would say, from the church because they or their loved ones have been hurt by faith or abused by religion, or mistreated by Christians, or judged or harmed because of whom God made them to be, while Christians looked away or joined in their judgment. 
On my desk is a new book that Jay handed me, Healing Spiritual Wounds, Reconnecting with a Loving God After Experiencing a Hurtful Church. So, danger do not enter on the doors will keep First Pres members safe, but it should also give us pause. It should give us pause. Maybe we should replace those signs with one saying, under construction. Those two words identify who the church is, this church and everybody of Christ. We are people and a family being renovated daily. In Michigan, we have two seasons, winter and construction. But in the state of the Christian faith, we have but one, and it is construction season. For people who have had bad experiences with churches, the word danger nailed to the church doors, even for appropriate reasons, will confirm their fears and replay their memories. So friends, how hard we must work to disprove the sign, no matter what the good intent of it, with our actions of welcome, acceptance, and kindness. The church should never be a place of misery, only of mercy. Misery and mercy. In today's sermon, we'll look at both. Misery, such a light topic for a Sunday morning this summer. Nobody brought misery to life on the page better than Stephen King, nor anyone on the big screen better than James Kahn and Kathy Bates in the 1990 psychological thriller Misery, having retreated to a deserted part of Colorado to complete his new book, famed romance novelist Paul Sheldon runs off the road in a blizzard, rendered unconscious. Annie Wilkes, his number one fan, also his stalker, sees the accident and pulls him and his multiple broken bones from the wreckage, transporting him to her remote cabin where she can nurse him back to health until communication is restored. In this time before GPS technology, after a few days, Paul is presumed dead. While they wait, Annie reads the latest installment in Paul's romance series about a woman named Misery Chastain. You think Harry Potter fans were devastated. Annie soon discovers that this is the last book in the series and that Misery dies. Crazy Annie is obsessed with her heroine Misery as well as her creator, Paul, and this leaves her fully unhinged, ordering Paul, while his bones heal, to write a new novel and bring Misery back to life. Annie keeps her captive from freeing himself by all means necessary, and survival depends upon this new novel being completed and being to her liking. Who could forget the hobbling scene involving a sledgehammer and Paul's ankles? Desperate, strapped to his bed with Lizzie Borden as his editor, criticizing his every chapter as not yet right. Every word has to be her way. To survive, Paul has to write it right. Now Paul is in misery writing about his fictional misery and needing Annie's mercy. Ironically, the easiest thing for Paul Sheldon to write about would be the real misery he is enduring. Like Paul Sheldon, Jeremiah was lured to share a certain message to tell a very particular story and not the one he wanted to share. But the job held him captive and he could not escape and truly live for God gave him the message to tell. Unlike Paul Sheldon, Sorry, I lost my place there. <laughs> Unlike Paul Sheldon, his captor is not a psychopath, but Yahweh, someone less difficult than certifiable Annie, and yet unyielding. A difference is that Jeremiah can be honest. He can share his genuine misery with his captor, Yahweh, 
a captor who is crazy for his people and heartbroken over their unfaithfulness. Jeremiah is captive to this message that leaves him in misery. Misery from the Latin miseria, a state of wretchedness. Misery is a kind of pain we experience at multiple levels, emotional, spiritual, and physical. It is all-encompassing agony. When I think of misery, I don't actually think of Paul Sheldon or his ankles. I think of the real-life misery today. I think of Otto Wambier, held captive in North Korea, beaten and tortured. I think of 30 people who died in Portugal a few weeks ago, trapped in their cars while fire swept across the highway. I think of 17-year-old neighbor Hassanan beaten to death by a man as she walked to her mosque in Virginia. I think of Sandy Hook and Pulse and Manchester. I think of people without health care who are in need of drugs and treatment and the mentally ill living under bridges or opioid addicts who love heroin to death. I think of a parent who has to bury a child or a friend who watches her dad die of Alzheimer's or anyone who is in the waiting room while their soulmate goes through surgery. I think of families separated and awaiting deportation from the only country their children have ever lived in, or Native Americans trapped in poverty and alcohol abuse on reservations, or black men pulled over in North Carolina for an expired license plate. I think of people like Jeremiah who spend their days working nightmare jobs with no option to do anything else. Lord knows there is plenty of misery around. Plenty to put into words of frustrated and desperate lament. In this beautiful world that God created, there is much that is miserable. Misery deepened by partisan leaders unable to agree on what mercy looks like. Like Jeremiah, sometimes I rail at God over this misery that so many are enduring. Because we are captive to the divine and God is love. But if God is not the cause of such misery, why does God allow us to remain in it? These are not questions of danger that we are asking. These are questions of faith. Perhaps we have no choice. In theological terms, there is a case to be made that our very nature, our human condition is, in fact, misery. St. Augustine said that life is misery, that there are two extremes that set the playing field for the entirety of human spirituality, human misery and God's mercy. He said that human beings are slaves to our own appetites. We're challenged in our understanding of the truth. We're always in conflict and turmoil and strife. And the sins of the flesh will forever separate us from the one true God. And that is misery. John Calvin agreed that turning away from God would be the ultimate misery. But he also said that there is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. In the midst of our misery, Calvin, thankfully I'm a Presbyterian and not a Catholic, Calvin calls us to remember the glory of God, to reach for anything that provide God's mercy, to find it in the big and small and pervasive acts of kindness all around us, and to look to Jesus, God's incarnate mercy, who took away our misery. Misery and mercy, the human condition and the divine one, C.S. Lewis once said that while those who speak about one's miseries usually hurt, those who keep silence hurt more. Misery needs to be shared. Misery calls out for mercy, for misery loves company. It wasn't company that Jeremiah, the great weeping prophet, was seeking in his misery, but mercy. It was a period of crisis and upheaval in Judah, 
In those days, Babylonian invasion, deportation, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple were all coming. And God lured Jeremiah into the job of prophet. I was enticed, he complains, feeling unable to say no to the task of delivering this most unpopular message. He signed on God's dotted line, knowing that this contract would require suffering, yet ill-prepared for the constant barrage of being attacked, mocked, and betrayed. Now, Jeremiah is beholden to this job he's agreed to take and inextricably bonded to this God he is serving. To share the message is devastating. But the alternative, he says, not to speak leaves him burning up inside. And so he will speak of aching resentment and awful loneliness and burning anger. Now, as a prophet, Jeremiah speaks a bold and unflinching word of judgment that the word that God has given him to share, but a word that comes at a great cost. As one author said, the hostility and resent resistance this evoked and the personal toll of speaking against the very reality that must have been his spiritual home placed him in a no-win situation. When he speaks, Yahweh doesn't support him. When he's silent, Yahweh doesn't console him. Yahweh has given him no visible support, no reliable solidarity. Jeremiah wishes he'd been killed in his mother's womb. Misery seeking mercy. In the same way, the psalm that we sung together today was by a psalmist surrounded by enemies, power, powerless, with little comfort for the psalmist. One author said that the psalmist was the butt of jokes and the subject of drunkard songs. From the rich to the poor, he was reviled in all of society. So true were the words of the psalmist that they're quoted several times in the New Testament by Jesus, another suffering servant who experienced misery at a level none of us could truly fathom. Now, finding words for their misery wasn't a problem. Jeremiah, the psalmist, Jesus on the cross. When we are in misery, we express it as a way to seek help and relief. M misery seeks company, for God should hear our lament and take our blame. Only God's mercy can redeem it. Anne Lamont is the author of Hallelujah Anyway. I hope some of you are reading that. But she also wrote a cool little book called Help Thanks Wow about prayer. She said, help is the first and greatest prayer because when we are in distress and we express it to God, we are taking ourselves off the hook and putting God on the hook. God responsible, admitting our helplessness. When God is on the hook, we are thrashing, helpless, furious, like a smaller kid being lifted by the seat of his pants by a big, mean kid. So we put the blame on God with words at times bitter and harsh, like today's texts. She writes, you might shout at the top of your lungs or whisper into your sleeve, I hate you, God. That is a prayer because it is real, it is truth, and maybe it is the first sincere thought you've had in months. Now, God can handle that, we know, for prayers of misery become prayers of mercy. In our misery and lament, we plead for mercy, and when we are grounded in God, we know that mercy is there for us no matter what we face. At least we know it most of the time. Misery meet mercy. As easily as those words of anger and lament roll off Jeremiah's tongue, so too do prayers of confidence in God's mercy. Mercy, misericordis, misericordis, two words, misery and heart. Mercy is God's heart extending into our misery and redeeming it. Mercy is God's attitude, accepting, giving, forgiving with immeasurable love in every circumstance. 
Pope Francis said that mercy is God's identity card. It is what God uses to get in the door, and once in, he never leaves. <coughs> now for Jeremiah, words of mercy empowered him in his misery, saying, God's mercy is mine. God was on the hook for his misery. God was on the hook for his mercy. Words of anguish turn to words of relief. The same thing is true of the psalmist. He comes around to, according to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Misery meet mercy. How does mercy come to meet misery today? In your own life and in the life of those you love and in the life of those you don't love so much. It comes not in words, but it comes in actions. It comes in the determination of Christians that no matter the state of misery of any human being, this place will help you and never endanger you. Here, God will come and begin to heal you. He will show up to help you. We will show up to help you. Dispelling mercy, misery with mercy takes courageous and tireless activity. Pope Francis wrote, the church must live and testify to mercy. Our language and our gestures must transmit mercy so as to touch the hearts of all people and inspire them once more to find the road that leads to God. Where the church is present, mercy must be evident. Words and acts of mercy must point to someone, the one who transforms our lives. The Sufi poet Rumi said, all words are fingers pointing to the moon and we think the words are the moon. Friends, let's point to the moon, God's mercy, and then lasso it down here and offer it in cold cups of water, tangible offerings of care to those who need it, peacemaking and justice and advocacy work to help turn our world away from misery and wholly into mercy. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Can it be more than a summer theme? Can we not just love mercy, but spread it all around, all the way to the margins of our society? Can we do whatever it takes when we meet misery to introduce it to mercy? I'm not going to spell out for you the situations where you are called to do that in this very moment in your life because I know they are already on your heart. It's been said that mercy is that we cannot get away from God but mercy is also that we want to. Danger, the sign says. In our misery, we worship a God who may not remove it, but looks to his people to bring mercy to anyone in the midst of it. To admit that possibility is a part of faith, but that does not mean we are in danger. It does mean we are under construction. So friends, let us build up some mercy because we have work to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Answer us, O God, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to us. Help us not to be molded by the unjust ways of the world, but let your compassion shape our hearts. Let righteous anger rise within us when we recognize that children live in fear of their lives based on what color skin they are or which neighborhood they live in. Give us eyes that we can see through people's hearts rather than judge our brothers and sisters by their outward appearances. Answer us, O Jesus, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to us. May we not lose sight of the goal you have set before us as a church, as your unified body, 
the goal of spreading your love to the ends of the earth, the goal of sending your people to places where your good news need to be preached, and the goal of reconciling all people to Christ. May your church, your bride, be a reminder to the rest of the world who you are and whose we are. Answer us, O Holy Spirit, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to us. We desperately pray for healing. May your hand of comfort and understanding rest upon grieving hearts this morning, grieving for the loss of their physical well-being, loss of their loved ones, loss of hope for the future, loss of intimacy and trust in long-term relationships. May your spirit of healing rest upon this place and each and every one of us. Now, remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this cup from the gifts you have given us and celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ. Accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving is a living and holy offering of ourselves that our lives may proclaim the one crucified and risen. Grateful for God's steadfast love and mercy, we pray in one voice the prayer Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.